Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Ancestry.com.au. You've seen the faded sepia photograph, but how tall was your great-grandfather? How much did he weigh? What colour were his eyes? And did he really have a mermaid tattoo? These are the sort of details that can turn a family tree into a colourful and compelling personal history. And they're the sort of details you can sometimes discover in military and or police records at Ancestry.com.au. I use Ancestry constantly to research and write this podcast, and it could help you piece your past together too. For more information, go to Ancestry.com.au because there could be more to your story. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders past and present. It's Saturday the 30th of September 1961, the long weekend that signals the start of the beach season and it's beautiful and warm in Sydney the temperature rising as the city heads into a spring heatwave. There's only one thing on the minds of tens of thousands of people, and that's heading down to Bondi to have a splash and have a sunbake. Among those thinking this way on this sunny day is Joan Mary Barry. This 25-year-old lives in Curlewis Street in Bondi. So she's just a stone's throw from Australia's most famous stretch of gleaming sand and sparkling surf. Dark-haired, dark-eyed Joan is a modern woman. She works as a dancer and she's proud of her physique. What Joan doesn't know is today she's going to make history. That's because Joan Mary Barry is on a collision course with Aubrey Shackleton Laidlaw. Orb, as he's known, and Orb is known by everyone, is a fixture at Bondi. For longer than Joan's been alive, he's been a beach inspector. Patrolling his patch of surf and sand, Aubrey Laidlaw has saved thousands of lives. But that's not why Orb's famous, or infamous, depending on your point of view. Orb is instead renowned as the frontline warrior in the endless war against indecency. More specifically, indecent bathing costumes. So today, when Orb sees what Joan Barry is wearing, he swings into immediate and aggressive action. Orb's mission is clear. Stop this woman from displaying herself so indecently. If Orb has said it once, he said it a million times. Bikinis are banned from Bondi Beach. They're not allowed and they never will be. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia. On the 1st of July 1946, 
15 years before Orb and Joan were destined to have their historic confrontation at Bondi Beach, some Australians were worrying that Bondi Beach was about to be washed away by a tidal wave. A man-made tidal wave. That's because on that day, the Americans were conducting a world-changing bit of military scientific business in the Pacific. In addition to tidal waves, people feared that this experiment might cause earthquakes, poison the atmosphere, tilt the world off its axis, or even destroy gravity. See, less than a year ago, Uncle Sam had ended World War II by dropping atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Now the Yanks were about to detonate another nuclear weapon. It was a 21 kiloton bomb, and it had been named Gilda for the character played by Rita Hayworth in the film of the same name. Gilda was going to be dropped on an atoll in the Marshall Islands. Australian newspaper headlines about this imminent atomic explosion were a little worrying. Zero hour for humanity, warned Aubrey's border mail. What power will man release? asked Port Pirie's recorder. The Mirror over in Perth told readers that their homes might shake. Sydney's Truth newspaper labelled what was coming a man-made holocaust. When Gilda was dropped that day, the blast created a mushroom cloud that rose about 18,000 feet. A new world was ushered in with that blast. The Cold War arms race that followed would, across generations, cause billions of people to live in fear, cost trillions and trillions of dollars, and waste quadrillions and quadrillions of hours of human endeavour that might have been spent on peaceful progress. Yet the name of that Marshall Island site where the test was conducted actually became much better known for something that happened half a world away just four days later. On that day, in Paris, French designer Louis Riard debuted his daring new swimwear in a fashion parade held at a popular pool. Louis promoted his two-piece bathing suit as being world-changing, just like that recent atomic test so he'd named it after the Marshall Island Atoll. Bikini. <whistles> Louis Reard's bikini did cause a sensation, but like so many so-called inventions, it was actually an iteration on an existing idea, which is a polite way of saying that he was a bit of a rip-off artist. See, two months earlier, another Frenchman, Jacques Heim, had come up with the design that was basically the bikini. Promotion-wise, he'd even been thinking along the same lines when he dubbed his design the Atom, because he reckoned it was the world's smallest bathing costume. Louis Reard was inspired by this design, and in a master stroke of timely marketing, landed upon the far better name of Bikini. Yet, by the time the Bikini came into being, Aubrey Shackleton Laidlaw had already, for more than a decade, been laying down the law against scandalous swimwear on his beloved Bondi Beach. According to records at Ancestry.com.au, Orb was born in March 1909 in Balmain. By 1925, aged just 16, he was a noted lifesaver at North Bondi and he was winning surf events. Orb Laidlaw was a belt swimming champion and a resuscitation expert. By 1930, he was captain of North Bondi Lifesavers. 
get into trouble in the surf, and Orb would do his best to bring you out and bring you back to life. On the 6th of February 1938, Orb was one of the brave surf lifesavers who plucked 250 people from the water at Bondi after three freak waves smashed into the beach and caused a massive sucking backwash. Despite the best efforts of Orb and other heroes, five people still drowned and the tragedy would ever after be known as Black Sunday. In addition to saving lives, Orb was also called on to save Sydney ciders from immorality and indecency. Back then, it was the blokes you had to keep an eye on. At this point, no Sheila would dare wear something daring. In late September 1934, the Sun newspaper reported, quote, Already there has been much speculation as to whether male surfers will bathe this season in trunks only on Sydney's beaches. Yesterday, on Bondi Beach, Inspector Aubrey Laidlaw had a busy time requesting sunbakers to replace the shoulder straps of their costumes. What was and wasn't allowed on Sydney beaches was soon set down in Ordinance 52 of New South Wales's Local Government Act. Ordinance 52 came into effect on the 10th of October 1935. Ordinance 52 applied to bathers over the age of 12 and it decreed, quote, The costume shall have legs at least three inches long. It shall completely cover the chest and front of the body from a line at the level of the armpits down to the waist. Below the waistline, the whole of the trunk, front, back and sides shall be covered and the covering shall descend without break to the level of the lower end of the leg covering. The costume shall be provided with shoulder straps or other means of keeping it in position. For bathers over the age of 12, the costume shall in addition have a half skirt attached to the waist covering the front of the body below the waistline and descending to the lower end of the leg covering. Got all of that? Good, because these regulations would be in force for the next quarter of a century. At the same time that Ordinance 52 went into effect, October 1935, the Spooner suit made its debut. The Spooner suit was swimwear, but it didn't come from some catwalk show in Paris or New York. Instead, it was designed by the New South Wales Minister for Local Government, Eric Spooner. Spooner suits began three inches below the top of the leg, ran all the way up to the top of the chest, and then descended in a sort of V-shape to the small of the back. They were made of wool, so you can imagine how uncomfortable they were, wet or dry, on a hot summer's day. The temptation would be to roll them down, but do that and you'd risk the wrath of Orb Laidlaw. Yet during World War II, women did start to wear two-piece swimsuits on Sydney beaches. These designs, seen from 1942, covered the tops of legs and had shoulder straps, but they did bear a little bit of midriff. So technically, these women were defying Ordnance 52. But Orb and other inspectors mostly turned a blind eye to such minor infractions. Yet, no sooner was the war over than a real menace to society breached Australia's beaches. These were known as French bathing costumes. Imagine. The top piece was pretty modest, but it didn't have shoulder straps. Meanwhile, the bottom piece came up in V-shapes at the thigh and the high waist could be worn rolled down. 
Aussie beachgoers might now be confronted by bare shoulders, bare clavicles, bare torsos, bare belly buttons and bare thighs. It was scandalous. So scandalous that in September 1945, the month after the atomic blast at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, New South Wales Minister for Local Government and future Premier Joe Carl could just not remain silent. But unlike his industrious swimwear designing predecessor, Mr Carl's skills appeared to be sitting on the fence and passing the buck. He said, quote, I have no desire to set myself up as a dictator of the standards of decency. Nevertheless, from the illustrations I have seen of this new style bathing costume, it would appear to be altogether too revealing. Mr. Carl, though, said it would be up to the councils to take action under Ordinance 52, but if any council wanted to change those regulations, then they would have to apply to his department. In drawing attention to the issue and drawing a very faint line in the sand, the government had guaranteed free publicity to anyone who offended against the ordinance. Like clockwork, the very next day, young women Beryl Laws and Pat Craig hit the sand at Coogee wearing the new style of French costume. The Sun, on Sunday the 23rd of September, had a page three photo of these smiling beauties walking hand in hand up the sand. Young chaps of Coogee, all still wearing their Spooner singlet-style costumes, admired the girls from one side of the picture. The headline? Beach crowd whistled at models' French costumes. The strange contradiction that would define the next 15 years of prudishness was set out in the accompanying article. Quote, The men whistled at the girls, but generally expressed disapproval of the suits. A council officer said, quote, I think the swimsuits are attractive, but a girl is in danger of losing the respect of men if she wears one. Beach inspector Tom King inspected the French costumes and he gave them the thumbs down in line with Ordnance 52. Beryl Laws and Pat Craig were well-known Tivoli dancers and models. They were frequently seen in the pages of Sydney newspapers wearing this or that fashion or new style of bathing costume. Sydney department store Mark Foyce had hired them for this stunt, knowing it would be free publicity for their new stock of French costumes. A store representative told the papers that such costumes were, of course, only intended for private beaches and garden sunbathing. Even before this stunt, Mark Foyes had sold out of their stock, and now demand would be through the roof. The Sun stoked the outrage by interviewing various service women about French costumes. One said, I think it's disgusting. If swimsuits look like this in 1945, I wonder what girls will be wearing five years from now. Other French costume coverage yielded a variety of views. Half a dozen people were interviewed up in Brisbane. One young soldier said that French costumes were all right. Quote, we must move with the times. An older chap chimed in. It's a jolly good idea, provided the girls who wear it are good looking. A housewife said she had no moral objection, but she wouldn't wear a French costume herself because, quote, I don't think I could manage to keep it on in the surf. But one old fella had the most disturbing take. Quote, I think it should be banned. Girls who set out to attract in this way lay themselves open to insult from some men. The Sun, other newspapers, Mark Foyes, and uptight official reaction 
all combined to make French costumes the hot ticket in 1945. Everyone wanted to see them. It actually became a little dangerous. At Bondi in mid-October, a few young larrikins shouted, Look, French costumes! This was like the reverse of shouting fire in a crowded cinema. There was a stampede across the sand. As a surf club captain told the Daily Telegraph, quote, Immediately half the people on the beach came running. There seemed to be several thousand people in the mob. Four beach inspectors forced their way to the middle of the crowd and announced there were no French swimsuits, but it was half an hour before many became convinced. Other hoaxes played out over the day with one girl who was sunbaking in ordinary beach attire rescued from an encircling crowd. A week later at Bondi, Orb Laidlaw was confronted with the first ordinary Aussie girl trying to get away with a French costume on his patch of sand. He swooped. The unidentified 20-year-old tried to say she didn't know they were banned. Orb asked her to leave. She did and she returned in an acceptable two-piece swimming costume. All was again well on Bondi Beach. Orb told the Daily Telegraph there was very little chance that any girl would reach the sand again in a French costume. Not on Orb's watch. That weekend, French costume fever reached far inland as well. At Narromine, near Dubbo, a pretty blonde named Norma Milgate had been threatening to wear her French costume as soon as it arrived in the post from Sydney. When it did, Norma did, immediately. The Daily Telegraph reported, quote, Norma appeared in the streets of the town with her dog on a lead and a shopping basket over one arm. She headed towards the local bars. The manager knew she was inbound and he got on the blower to the mayor for advice. For cripe's sake, the town leader said, don't let her in. Turned away, Norma walked to the cemetery to place flowers on the grave of her friend. Then she sunbaked in Narromines Park. If nothing else, Norma of Narromine challenged normal narrow minds with her big day of wearing very little. But October 1945's most outrageous exposure of the French costumed feminine form came at the Sydney Sports Ground. There, in front of a crowd of 8,000 people, a 23-year-old model named Patricia Nyland appeared wearing a coat which she whipped off to reveal, voila, scandalous swimwear. There were cheers and there were jeers. But what was the ratio of the former to the latter? Australia actually would get an inkling because a veteran copper arrested Patricia Nyland and her promoter for offensive behaviour. When the matter came to court in December, a magistrate, a police prosecutor, a Crown witness and five defence witnesses spent two full days arguing the case's merits. The officer who made the arrest, Sergeant Albert Caldwell, testified for an entire day. The defence's cross-examination of this copper was classic, and it was reported in detail by delighted tabloid newspapers. The sergeant tried to claim that he didn't have a problem with art, even nudes, but it was offensive to see women wearing these outfits whose scantiness exposed so much skin, even the belly button. The sergeant was quizzed about his attitudes to the female form, Norman Lindsay's nude studies, the naked sculptures found in the Archibald Fountain, the relative offensiveness of female hips to exposed male nips. 
the sergeant said he'd made the arrest because he'd received so many complaints. The accused's shocking display, he said, had caused hundreds of offended women to storm from the Sydney sports ground. Yet asked directly how many official complaints he had received, the sergeant said, well, it was one, and he refused to name this woman. The defence barrister sought confirmation, asking, quote, So that was one complaint from among 8,000 people. The sergeant responded, yes. This monumental waste of time resulted in the defendants being found guilty and fined one pound. By late July the following year, in the wake of photos of the atom bomb test at Bikini Atoll, Australian newspaper and magazine readers saw pictures of the namesake swimwear, which was also now reckoned a major threat to civilization as we knew it. There she was, Michelle Bernardini, the French nude model, standing by that Parisian pool in Louis Riard's bikini design. Its front and rear pieces of material were joined by just a thin strip of fabric, and the bikini bottom had no fabric that could be rolled up to hide that sinful belly button. Almost everything was on show. As we've heard, the bikini was a copy of the Atom, and the Atom itself was but a minimisation of the popular French costume style. So that meant sewing your own bikini-style swimwear wasn't too hard. The first local skirmish came from just such a facsimile. It was made by 17-year-old Lidcombe lass Patricia Riley. This cunning young seamstress clearly knew all about Ordnance 52, and she thought she'd come up with a workaround. See, the bottom piece of her DIY bikini had 8 inches of transparent netting on either side. Technically, her upper thighs were covered. In reality, there were expanses of scintillating side leg. Pat Riley hit Bondi Beach on Sunday the 15th of September 1946. Orb Laidlaw swooped and he ordered her off. Once Pat put on some briefs to cover her upper legs, Orb allowed her to return. He told the Daily Telegraph, quote, Women's swimsuits have already reached a minimum and no decent beach authority will let them go beyond that limit. But plucky Pat Riley promised to push back. She said she'd return to Bondi next Sunday. Pat did. This time Pat was met by one of Orb's deputies, Beach Inspector Bill Willis. Clever Pat had worn flesh-coloured briefs beneath her DIY bikini bottoms, but Bill Willis still ordered her to go back and change. Pat did don an acceptable black two-piece, which was, of course, still technically illegal under Ordnance 52. Then, in a defiant display, Pat stood on the bonnet of a car and held her DIY bikini aloft. She was watched by a crowd of 2,000, many of them men in suits and ties. With the Daily Telegraph photographer snapping away, Pat counted one, two, three, and then she tossed the bikini to the mob. The men tore it to pieces in a bid to get a bit they could treasure forever. Orb Laidlaw was not impressed. Recalling the recent great Bondi French costume stampede hoax, he said disgustedly, People were nearly trampled to death when girls wore much less brief swimsuits here last year. Just as there was now a race to build and test bigger and bigger atomic bombs, 
there was a race to make and wear smaller and smaller swimwear. It wasn't limited to the ladies either. Orb Laidlaw was called on to be an equal opportunity wowser. A month after Pat Riley tried to wear her DIY bikini, Orb had to order off a chap who was wearing V-shaped trunks made of some flimsy material. Orb tut-tutted, We won't stand for things like that. A couple of weeks later, there was another stunt. This time two young women, Dot Mason and Pat Cullen, both 18 years old, came to Bondi Beach wearing 1909-style costumes. Pantaloons, stockings, high necks and mob caps. The girls were protesting bans on modern swimwear by showing how silly old-fashioned costumes had been back when their mums were girls. This duo was followed by a dozen surfers who gave them ironic wolf whistles before grabbing them and dumping them in the waves. It all seemed to be in good fun, playing up to the newspaper cameras. But the following day, hundreds of teenagers really did mob and manhandle two young female beachgoers. Police officers and beach inspectors had to fight their way through the crowd to rescue the girls, who reportedly suffered severe bruising. What had triggered this mob? The girls had not been wearing anything scanty. The manager of the Bondi Pavilion said it was another hoax. Quote, Some foolish louts incited the crowd to stampede. Orb Laidlaw made a report to Waverley Council. Alderman blamed the newspapers for stirring things up by publishing photos of girls in banned swimwear. They requested extra police from the Metropolitan Superintendent to protect women and girls at Bondi. The drive against indecency intensified after a Paddington magistrate complained that women's scanty costumes were inciting the menfolk. The next summer, detectives went uncovered to go undercover. They donned swimming trunks and mingled on Sydney beaches to keep an eye on the crowds. They were especially on the prowl for girls sunbathing face down with their shoulder straps undone. Such behaviour had to be stopped because of the effect it had on men, just like that Paddington magistrate had warned. The next outrage, though, came from the blokes. Snappy naps. These were V-shaped swimming briefs that couldn't possibly be briefer, or so the newspapers said. In reality, they were pretty modest high-waisted bathers. But Orb Laidlaw declared in October 1948 that they were too scanty. Of course, the Sun dutifully printed a photo so men knew exactly what to ask for when they went to buy the snappy naps in department stores. There was also now a racist angle to enforcing Ordinance 52. Post-war immigration had led to an influx of Europeans who were dubbed New Australians. These characters with their V-shaped swimmers, Orb said, had become the worst beach offenders. Quote, We're trying to make them understand that we will not approve a costume unless it is at least nine inches wide at the sides. We might have to put up signs in the Bondi dressing sheds explaining it in three or four European languages. By spring 1950, it had been four years since the Bikini Atoll tests and the birth of the Bikini swimsuit. Yet this threat still hadn't reached Sydney shores. That was until Thursday the 28th of September 1950, when the first real Bikini was sighted incoming to Bondi. The unidentified wearer was a woman in her late 20s, and she was leading a poodle on a leash. She was quite the sight as she stepped from her hotel opposite the beach. 
That was because her small bikini was skin-coloured. From a distance, she would have looked nude. Orb Laidlaw got to her before she got to the sand, and he refused to allow her onto the beach. The woman refused to leave. Orb threatened to call the coppers. That was when she departed and took her little dog too. Victorious Orb Laidlaw told the sun just how dangerous the threat had been. Quote, it was the tiniest covering we have seen at Bondi. The two pieces would have made about one pocket handkerchief. It was more than a little daring. As the sun reported gravely, the blonde beauty appeared to have been foreign. Of course, she had to be, because even now, no local stores dared to stock bikinis. Just over a year later, November 1951, it was another foreigner, American film star Gene Parker, who turned up at Bondi in a bikini. Beach inspector Bill Willis confronted her, saying, You must leave at once. You are making an exhibition of yourself. Of course, that was the point. Gene Parker was posing for publicity pictures, and now publicity was guaranteed. Orb weighed in, agreeing that the American star's costume was below all decency. Gene Parker complained, quote, I have never been so embarrassed in all my life. Gene told every reporter who'd listened that she'd worn this very costume on plenty of Californian beaches and had dearly wanted to do the same on your famous Bondi. Photos of Jean in her bikini were splashed all over Australian newspapers. Interviewed, she said bikinis were the most comfortable swimwear in the world and she advised that all Australian women try them immediately. This scandal even made news in America. The New York Post's headline read, Bikini Incident, Australia Shoes Our Jean Parker. The World Telegram story about the incident ran a mocking Aussie-accented headline, is that a bathing suit, mate? The subhead read, Aussie Beach Cop Chases Bikini-Clad Jean Parker. This story made the curious land down under seem like some sort of primitive backwoodsy place. But perhaps change was on the horizon. Arthur Tunstall, inspector at Redleaf Pool, told the Daily Telegraph that Australians would soon accept the bikini. Anyone who didn't, he said, would be regarded as an old stick in the mud. Arthur prophesied, The bikini is definitely on the way in and no one can stop it. You watch, in two years every woman who has a figure will be wearing a bikini. We Australians will have to become accustomed to them. Maybe it was time to change the law. In December 1951, a motion was put forward in Waverley Council. If carried, the council would ask the state government to update Ordinance 52 so it better reflected the times. Waverley councillors voted 8-2 against the motion. Yet ordinance offenders kept getting more and more brazen. In September 1953, Orb was back on the warpath saying that new Australians posed the greatest threat to respectability. Quote, We have seen women on the beach with little more on than two hankies. But some men, mostly from overseas, have briefs about as spacious as one hanky. Never fear though, Orb would never stop fighting them on the beaches. He told the Sunday Sun and Guardian, quote, Despite the trend overseas, I don't think bikinis will ever be allowed on Bondi. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As bizarre as this bikini and brief span story is, we do have to remember that during this entire period, Orb Laidlaw, Bill Willis and other beach inspectors were mostly called upon to ensure the safety of swimmers, surfers and sunbathers. While they were policing the beach against so-called indecency, they were also saving people from drowning, getting them out of the water when there were sharks sighted, policing against pervs and pickpockets, and generally keeping crowds as peaceful as possible. So Sydney siders had to be thankful for that. But beach inspectors would have been able to do this vital work so much better if they didn't also have to worry about enforcing the ban on supposedly indecent swimwear. In 1956, Bill Willis said that he and some other beach inspectors resented having to enforce Ordinance 52. As everyone knew, the law was an ass in this respect. In October 1957, the Sydney Morning Herald pointed out that under Section 77 of the Police Offences Act, surf bathing was still actually banned between the hours of 6am and 8pm. That meant that every weekend, during summer, some quarter of a million people were breaking the law. Yet none of those people were being chased off the beach or threatened with arrest. Even Orb Laidlaw realised it was a bit silly. On the 18th of November 1958, he posed for the Sydney Morning Herald on Bondi. Orb stood in his white board shorts and singlet, one arm around the shoulder of a girl named Pat Desai who wore a 1909-style bathing costume. But Orb was looking directly at shapely model Ursula Clement, who stood beside him in a floral French costume that was still technically illegal. In another photo, Ursula stood grinning beside a danger sign as Orb appraised her with hands on hips. He was quoted as saying, If they all dressed like Pat, I would be out of a job. Girls such as Ursula make a pleasant job all the more pleasant. While Orb could have a laugh about French costumes these days, he was still dead set against bikinis. Bronte surf lifesaver Frank Norton would later recall that enforcing the bikini ban was an annoying part of the job. But he said he tried to do it politely and gently, unlike Orb who would, quote, come up and scream and yell. The ugliness of this wasn't lost on cartoonist Les Tanner. One of his cartoons at this time had a corpulent old inspector, rolls of blubber spilling over his trunks, jowls stacked on top of each other. This big bloke was ordering a slender bikini beauty off the sand with the words, Get off the beach! You're obscene! Then, on Saturday the 30th of September 1961, this scene sprang to life not just for the Bondi Beach crowd, but also for thousands of people watching ABC TV in their lounge rooms all over Australia. It was a hot day, the first day of the beach season. Bondi was pumping. It had been a long time now since Spooner suits and French costumes had drawn Orb's fury. 
so the beach was packed with men in trunks, chests uncovered, and women in two pieces, showing off their midriffs, shoulders, and their thighs. There were also plenty of girls wearing bikinis. Bikinis were controversial enough that Keith Smith of the ABC TV program Four Corners was doing a story about the issue. Microphone in hand, cameraman at his side, Keith had already asked a bunch of people on Sydney streets if bikinis should be banned. Now, he'd arrived at Ground Zero, Bondi Beach, to seek the opinions of women who actually wore them. And there she was. 25-year-old Joan Barry, native of Bondi, wearing a gold bikini as she walked along the path above the packed beach. The cameraman filmed as Keith asked, excuse me, in preparing to interview Joan. But next thing, Abe Laidlaw barreled into frame. His broad, leathery back was to the camera. All around, there were hundreds of people. Most of the men were only in togs. In the background, there was a young woman who looked a lot like Joan, and this woman was wearing an even smaller bikini. But Orb, and another inspector who'd materialised at his side, had only eyes for the girl in the gold bikini. Orb ordered, Put something on, madam. Don't walk around here with that. Put, put something on, please, otherwise. Then Orb aggressively grabbed the microphone in Keith's hand, closing his meaty paw over it. In surprise, the reporter said, All right. Orb threatened, You want me to take this here? Confiscate it? The ABC reporter replied, Well, it's Commonwealth property. Orb, I don't care. Well, I'll confiscate it. Keith, you confiscate it then. Orb, well, I will then. With that, Keith let go. Now Orb had the microphone, which was, of course, still recording. During these ugly moments, Joan, in her bikini and sunglasses, had been standing there looking at Orb rather perplexed. Now he said to her very gruffly, You get something on. Don't stand out here like that, you know? Joan replied, I don't see anything wrong with my outfit. Orb, you come over, over to um, the pavilion, yes. As he was saying this, the other woman in the briefer bikini was standing in the back of shot, amused at the absurdity, as were dozens of other close onlookers. Orb continued to Joan, You come over and sit with us in the pavilion. Come on, come with us. Joan responded of her outfit, This isn't anything I think is wrong. Orb replied, Never mind whether it's wrong or not. He ordered her to accompany him to the pavilion. There, away from the news camera, Orb told Joan to change her clothing and give him her name and address. Joan refused all of these demands. So Orb summoned a constable and he had her arrested. Joan Barry was taken from Bondi Beach in her bikini and she was held at Bondi Police Station. An officer went to her flat to get her address. Joan was fingerprinted, charged, released on £5 bail but ordered to appear in court on Tuesday. And the cops confiscated her gold bikini, which would be kept as evidence for the hearing. The Sunday Mirror's reporter was waiting for Joan when she left the police station. He arranged for her to pose for another picture. In this photograph, which was likely taken in her Bondi apartment, Joan would grin and bear it, by which I mean she wore another bikini and a big smile as she leaned against a mantelpiece with a cigarette in her hand. While she looked happy and defiant, she was really quite angry. Quote, When I was fingerprinted, I objected. 
There were hundreds of girls on the beach wearing bikinis like mine. If the inspector had asked me politely to leave the beach, I would have left without trouble. But I was shocked and embarrassed. I never thought for a moment that my bikini would be objected to. Bikinis have been in use on the beaches for several years now. I don't think they offend anyone really. The Four Corners reporter Keith Smith told the Daily Telegraph just how angry and aggressive Orb Laidlaw had been. Quote, While trying to pull the microphone away from me, he told the girl she was offensive. The girl was cool and calm, but the inspector hustled her off the beach. The ABC viewers who saw the incident on TV tonight will probably feel the same way I do about it. And the way I feel is disturbed. Orb Laidlaw, though, was unapologetic. He told the Sunday Mirror, We are really making war on the Bikini Brigade this year. We don't object to normal two-piece swimsuits, but the real bikinis are definitely out. On Tuesday, the Sun's entire front page was given over to the scandal. The bold screamer headline read, Bondi Bikini Girl Facing Three Charges. The Sun had a photo of Joan in the polka dot frock she wore to Paddington Court that day. The police were going to prefer two further charges relating to the wearing of certain costumes, along with the charge of offensive behaviour and charges relating to her not giving her name and address. The police clearly expected two things. One, Joan would elect to have the proceedings heard in closed court, which was the right of first offenders. Two, having avoided the shame of publicity, Joan would then plead guilty, pay her fine and get on with her life. But Joan Barry did neither of those things. She pleaded not guilty. She wanted her case heard in open court. Joan told the papers, I've got nothing to hide. This decision meant that it would be the government, the prosecutors, the police and the beach inspectors who'd be held up to scrutiny by the press. Joan's bail and remand were continued and the case was adjourned until December. Joan's court appearance was reported by the Daily Mirror on the same page as a photo of a woman in a bikini on Bondi being towered over by Orb Laidlaw and Beach Inspector Cyril Cousins. This was another ugly and threatening image. The woman, the paper reported, was just one of dozens of girls who'd been ordered off in the days since Joan's arrest. Told to leave, this woman had crammed her belongings into a bag and had been quite upset, telling the reporter, All I can say is this, the shops are selling them. I bought this one in the city and had the back raised. The front and sides are standard. But Orb told the reporter that the woman's bikini was indecent. The Daily Mirror added a postscript to this photo story. Quote, Under Ordinance 52 of the Local Government Act, both inspectors are wearing illegal costumes. Despite the double, triple and quadruple standards at play here, Orb Laidlaw reckoned all of this publicity was actually helpful because it ensured the public had been duly warned of what they could expect if they broke the rules. But now there was a backlash. The Daily Telegraph's editorial on Tuesday the 3rd of October was headlined Storm in a Bikini. It began. Last weekend, thousands of television viewers had a close-up of a prize piece of unrehearsed arrogance. The editorial described Keith Smith trying to interview Joan Barry. Quote, 
promptly, a husky character intruded on the scene, grabbed the microphone and spoke aggressively to the girl and the interviewer. When viewers got over their surprise, they realised that this intruder and another who joined him were not thugs, but official beach inspectors. Because the matter was before the court, the Daily Telegraph wouldn't debate the rights and wrongs of the bikini ban. Yet it did say, quote, Most viewers will agree that by ordinary standards of civilised human conduct, the inspector's behaviour was conspicuously offensive. Had the inspectors the right, the paper asked, to act in this, quote, abusive manner? Further, had they the right to strong-arm the press or television reporters? The next day, the Daily Telegraph banged the drum again in another editorial. Quote, The current bother over bikinis on the beaches is an example of a bad law coming home to roost. It explained that the 1935 regulations had been, quote, out of date then and are ludicrous now. The Daily Telegraph went on. Under these regulations, just about everybody on our beaches, including the beach inspectors, is breaking the law which means that any petty beach official can be a law unto himself and make his own arbitrary decision on what is or is not acceptable. The law needed to change, the paper argued, so that beach inspectors could get on with their proper jobs of ensuring public safety and public convenience. A cartoon showed a bunch of little kids in front of a lounge room TV, with one boy's hand on the dial as he said to his mates, Never mind cops and robbers, let's have beach inspectors chasing bikinis. But Orb Laidlaw didn't seem to care. Commenting on how he did his job, he said there was no hard and fast rule about what was indecent. It all came down to his own judgement. Orb said, After you've been on the job for a while, you know what's right and what isn't. He went on blithely, quote, I think a lot more girls are trying to get away with daring costumes. I sent three more off the beach today. Another fortnight and we'll have them weeded out. Even now, in 1961, Orb still hoped for victory. But his political masters were losing their nerve. Mr Hills, Minister for Local Government, said he was going to review Ordinance 52 because it was out of date and out of step. But until he and his fellow politicians came up with some new wording, Orb and his beach inspection brigade would be hard at work. As the Sydney Morning Herald reported a week after Jones' arrest, quote, Dozens of girls in skimpy costumes on Bondi Beach were told by beach inspectors yesterday to cover up or else. The article continued, As uniformed police patrolled the esplanade and detectives waited in cars, the girls donned jackets or draped towels over their bikinis. A 20-year-old woman named Melody Lane was interviewed by the paper. She said she'd been ordered off the beach and told that if she didn't cover up, she would be arrested and she'd be charged. Melody said she'd been ordered off the beach three times this year already, but she said she'd keep coming back to protest the bikini ban. In this, Melody was like Joan. Quote, I want to prove there is nothing wrong with bikinis. I wouldn't mind being charged just to protest against the stupidity of the ban. The remainder of October 1961 showed just how far the world had come in the 15 years since the word bikini had entered the popular consciousness. There was shock and there was horror when Russia detonated a 50-plus megaton atomic bomb dubbed King of Bombs, 
which is still the biggest man-made explosion ever recorded. But at the same time, Australia had a new Queen of the Bikini. This was new Australian beauty, Tanya Verstak. Tanya had just been crowned Miss Australia. And in the blitz of publicity, a recent photo had come to light. There was Tanya in a bikini. Before she'd become a national celebrity, she'd been filmed in this swimwear as part of a documentary made by BP. Now this film still was all over the place. It was hard to argue that bikinis were indecent when one was being worn by a woman who was about to go on and do us proud as Miss International. Even though the tide had finally turned, Joan Barry still had to face her punishment. She appeared in Sydney's Central Court on the 12th of December 1961. Exhibit number one was her gold bikini, which the police prosecutor claimed was offensive. When worn, the cop said, the top of the bottom section was, quote, at least five inches below Miss Barry's navel. The sides were only three quarters of an inch high. In terms of her not giving her name and address, Jones Barrister argued that she hadn't known that Orb Laidlaw was a beach inspector who was acting within his powers. The magistrate, Mr. Bott, rejected this as BS. Quote, If anybody told me they didn't know Mr. Laidlaw was an inspector on Bondi Beach, they would probably be a visitor from another state. It was true. Orb was famous, or infamous, and had been for longer than Joan had been alive. Yet Bondi Beach was a tourist attraction, and by definition it brought people from other states and from other countries. Was this how Sydney wanted these visitors treated, if they didn't know who Orb Laidlaw was and what the rules were? Further, in the ABC footage, which you can watch on YouTube, Orb didn't identify himself to Joan, nor did he establish his credentials. He'd just gone in bellowing. Yet Orb had Magistrate Mr. Bott's support. Quote, If inspectors have any powers at all, they must exercise them or leave the beach. As for the accused, Mr. Bott said Joan was, quote, a person of good character, but foolish, possibly, in her conduct. He convicted Joan on each of two charges of failing to supply her name and address, and one of refusing to resume ordinary dress when asked by a beach inspector to do so. Joan Barry had three convictions against her, and she was fined £5, which was more than half what an average female worker was paid in 1961. This manifest injustice, coupled with the celebration of Tanya Verstak, meant that Ordinance 52 was now truly beyond a joke. By the end of the year, the state government had scrapped it for good. The new rule simply said beachgoers had to wear a proper and adequate bathing costume. While this didn't strip inspectors of their authority, it lessened the scope of their powers in this regard, and there would be no further bikini prosecutions. The battle was over. Orb Laidlaw had lost the war against the bikini. But now, like combatants after a ceasefire, former enemies were soon seen to set aside their old hostilities. In May 1965, at the annual reunion of Bondi Beach Inspectors, Bill Willis held hands with an 18-year-old bikini girl named Carolyn Johnson as news cameras snapped away. Two years later, in June 1967, Orb and 159 other beach inspectors were up on the Gold Coast, 
getting an eyeful of the latest swimwear so they knew what to expect on the sand in the summer ahead. Let's leap ahead now to 1979 when Waverley Council did the unthinkable by approving topless bathing. One day, five years later, in 1984, a woman named Yvonne Friedman, who, back in the day, had been booted from Bondi for wearing a bikini, was walking along the beach topless. When, who should she run into but her old nemesis, Orb Laidlaw? Orb was now in his 70s. Yvonne would tell the Sydney Morning Herald that she'd asked him, What do you think of it now? Meaning, beaches, bikinis, and bare breasts. Orb had replied, It's everywhere I go now. I think it's great. But I had a job to do, and I think you were a bit ahead of your time. Orb would recall to the Sydney Morning Herald in June 1985, quote, The bikini was new to everybody. We just had to go along with the council rules at the time. That was my job. Orb Laidlaw passed away in 1992. Of course, obituaries focused on his bikini ban enforcement. There'd also be an element of revisionism in some tributes. The Sydney Morning Herald quoted one of his mates who claimed that the bikini incidents had all been set-ups, orchestrated by newspapers and by swimwear companies, and that all along, Orb had merely been playing along. That might have been the case sometimes. But as we've heard, it wasn't true in the day-to-day. Orb did aggressively boot women and men from Bondi. So it is understandable that he'd be remembered as an embodiment of puritanical Australia. That said, the man ought to also be remembered as a heroic lifesaver. At his funeral, Orb's son said that over his father's long career, he'd saved some 6,000 people from drowning. Yet we should also salute Joan Barry for standing up for herself and for standing up against an absurd law. With her gold bikini and her refusal to plead guilty, Joan Barry helped to drag Australia into the future. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. I'll be back with a new episode very soon. If you'd like to support the show, Patreon and Apple links are in your show notes. As always, thanks for listening. 